This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for March 18th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel. We discuss the lack of research on drug safety and pregnancy and the ways that that might be changing. After that, we hear from researcher Nicola Gruwich about his science advances paper on rational inattention and how measuring this in mice can help us understand why our brains attend to some things and ignore others. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Now we have Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She's a staff writer for the Science News Team. This week, she wrote about drug safety in pregnancy and how researchers are trying to fill in some pretty big data gaps. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, sure. This is a super fascinating story. Can you kind of encapsulate for us this ethical quandary that researchers, healthcare workers, pregnant people face when it comes to taking medicine and getting certain kinds of treatment during pregnancy? Sure. So I've written about clinical trials for a long time, and I've always known that when you look at a clinical trial, people who are pregnant are nearly always excluded as a matter of course, as well as uh, women who are breastfeeding. I've always known that, and I've thought for a long time about trying to write about this. So the problem is that many drugs that are on the market now and also being studied in trials as experimental therapies 
are not tested in people who are pregnant. And even after a medicine comes on the market, it's rare that there's a really um, systematic investigation of that medication in pregnant women. So what happens then is that somebody with a chronic illness, depression, lupus, arthritis, any number of illnesses for which people take medication, they've been taking their medication, they've been doing fine, they get pregnant. And now suddenly it's unclear is that medication safe for them and their fetus during pregnancy? What percent of medicines have actually been investigated? In general, people in this field will say that for at least 90% of prescription medications that are available around the world, fetal safety is largely undetermined due to a lack of human data. Now, many made medicines are tested in animal models, and we can get some information from that. And I should add that even though there's a lack of data, that doesn't mean that medicines are not prescribed in pregnancy. Often we have to prescribe them, so they are. But there can be a lack of really, you know, what we think of as really clear, solid scientific data. There's an ethical question for all the parties involved, from the researchers, they have to decide whether or not it makes sense to include pregnant women in their trial. And then for doctors, for healthcare providers, should I prescribe this? Should I warn my patient and tell them not to take their medication? And then for the person having a baby, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to think about their own health? Are they supposed to think about the health of the fetus? Can they do both? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's ethical, it's legal, it's regulatory, it's scientific. As you can imagine, people who are pregnant, they really want to protect the fetus. They're scared of harming the fetus. And so when there's an absence of data, there might be a reluctance to take certain medications in pregnancy. The problem is that not taking medications can be very harmful. It can be harmful for the, the mother-to-be, and it can also be harmful for the fetus. It's a really difficult spot that a lot of patients and then their doctors find themselves in. You have an example in your story of a woman going through this right now. Can you talk a little bit about what her experience has been? Yeah, so I spoke with a wonderful young woman, Kinu, who has lupus, a pretty severe form of lupus, and is pregnant, although actually delivering this week. <laughs> so she may have had her baby by the time this is posted. She had a, you know, some up and down experiences in pregnancy um, with lupus. Some of it being a lack of information, I think, and then some of it a real balancing of the risks and benefits to supporting her health and that of her fetus while also protecting her fetus from any potential harms. And I think ultimately she and her physicians together just did a remarkable job that I watched as a distant outsider, but it was certainly stressful. And how common is it for someone who's pregnant to be on prescription medication? I would say it's millions of people. It's common. If you can if you think of just women in their 20s and 30s and early 40s, how many people take some sort of prescription medication? And those are just the prescription medications. Then we have over-the-counter medications too. We're talking about a lot of people here. There's this historical backdrop to the ethics of medicine during pregnancy that we have to touch on a little bit here. Basically, thalidomide in the 1950s. Can you talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, so thalidomide is really a a horrific story. It was a drug that was developed in the 1950s, was approved in many different countries, actually was not ever approved in the U.S., but was approved in many other parts of the world and was taken for all sorts of conditions. And one of those was nausea in pregnancy, morning sickness, as it's commonly called. And what happened was that there were soon reports of babies being born with missing or malformed limbs and other serious problems born to mothers who had taken thalidomide while they were pregnant, particularly in early pregnancy. And ultimately, thousands of babies were affected. Many of them died soon after birth. The drug was taken off the market in the early 1960s. And it left this legacy, I think, of of real fear around what a drug might do in a pregnant person. I think thalidomide, for the people who work in the field of, of drug safety and pregnancy, thalidomide is really viewed as an exception. But it did create this climate that in some ways has persisted over time. It seems to be reflected in the practices of researchers. So the idea that just don't include anybody who's pregnant in a research trial is kind of the norm. Yes, absolutely. So I think that has long been the norm. We don't want to include these folks. It's scary. It's complicated. It comes with regulatory hurdles. There are ethical questions. It's just hard. It's hard. It's how it's perceived. It doesn't necessarily have to be as hard as it's perceived, but it's perceived as being very difficult. Decades ago, women used to be routinely excluded from clinical trials. Again, as a matter of routine, it was just kind of how it was. And then the laws changed, the expectations changed, and that's no longer the case. And then children weren't included in clinical trials for a long time. Also children. And again, there was a fear there too. You might feel that it's scary to test an experimental therapy on a, on a little kid. But of course, there are downsides to not testing. And so again, over the last several decades with children, there's been a number of efforts to help include them in trials in ways that are really ethical and appropriate. And that has changed things for them. But for pregnancy, it's still, we're not there yet. And they're largely excluded from trials. Now, I should say, there are certainly drug trials that do include pregnant people. It's not like they're never in trials. But those trials tend to focus on pregnancy-specific problems or challenges. So things like preterm birth, preventing the transmission of HIV from mother to baby. So there are trials that exist. I don't want to give the sense that they don't. The, The trials that don't exist and that I was really interested in are just for any number of different chronic illnesses that people can have and then they happen to get pregnant. What about cases where the medicine might be keeping the fetus safe during pregnancy? Yeah, and that was actually something really interesting I learned from my reporting on the story. That's definitely the case that it's very important in some cases to stay on the medications. One category where that comes up is in in autoimmune disease, because when people who with autoimmune diseases, and those could include diseases like lupus or Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, those diseases are marked by these inflammatory flares, the immune system going a little crazy, and the medications that folks with those illnesses take tamp down on those immune reactions. So your immune system is kind of holding steady. Now, if someone is pregnant and their immune system is going wild and they have a lot of inflammation through their body, that can be very dangerous actually for the fetus. It can cause preterm birth and other problems. So there have been studies that have shown that speaking generally, it's often safer for those women to stay on at least some combination of medication than to just go off their medication. Even drugs for conditions of pregnancy are not easy to study. You talk about this example of preeclampsia research in your story. 
So preeclampsia is a condition of pregnancy in which a woman's blood pressure just spikes to very unsafe levels. And right now, the only way to cure it is to deliver the baby, which as you can imagine is not a good solution if the baby is not ready to be delivered. So some of these women can end up with babies that are just terribly premature and it's a life-threatening condition. So there's a real need for treatments. And there's a researcher and a physician who's really had a passion for trying to improve treatment here. And for a number of years, he's been trying to study actually a statin, a cholesterol drug that can also control inflammation and some other issues in pregnancy. He's been able to do that in some small pilot studies and has seen positive effects. But as often happens in trials, those studies are small. We need bigger numbers to really be able to say definitively this drug works. He wants to do a bigger trial and he has funding for it. But it's been very difficult to get it off the ground because regulators are concerned. Again, it comes back to this question of fear and also how much data do we need in animals and other preclinical models before we move a drug into pregnant people in a big way. And there's, there's just a real tension there. Now, have there been some moves on the funding side or the regulatory front trying to get more pregnant people into trials? So there have definitely been some efforts. I think in some ways, trials are actually the hardest piece of this, particularly trials of experimental therapies that haven't been approved. So there, it's it's really tough to make changes. And there are also are legitimate questions about when, what types of trials should include pregnant people. However, there have been other efforts to just gather more information. So there, there are efforts to create um, computer models that can really simulate how a drug might behave in a person who's pregnant and almost follow it through the body and study its metabolism, study if it can pass through the placenta and how the fetus might metabolize it. I really thought that this was interesting, thinking about how much more blood there was in the body for a pregnant person. There's a lot of change. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of change in pregnancy, which is another reason why it can be hard to study this or hard to just include these folks in trials along with everybody else. But yeah, I mean, there are some really significant physiologic changes in pregnancy that could also just affect how drugs are dosed, too, in ways we don't necessarily think about. So yeah, I would say people are looking at computer models. I think there also are ways to study whether drugs cross the placenta, whether they pass through breast milk, which already is studied, but there are ways to do that more aggressively. There also is discussion of studying the babies and the children over time who may have had drug exposures, that can be hard to do. Is this registries where if someone happens to be on a drug or in a trial and then get pregnant, they're signed up for being followed? Yeah. So these are not women in trials. These are just people who are pregnant or people who have, you know, say Crohn's disease and their physician says to them, hey, there's this registry available for people with Crohn's disease who are pregnant and on any different, any medication really, or no medications, because we need those people too. There are different registries that pregnant women can sign up for, and then they can be followed. They might share their medical records. There might potentially be questionnaires that follow the children over time. But there are a number of different registries out there. Some of them are disease-specific registries, and some of them are just general registries that aim to gather information on drug effects in pregnancy. So what does happen if you're in a clinical trial and, and you get pregnant? That was one of the most interesting and in some ways shocking things to me about this story. Because as you can imagine, someone might be in a trial for arthritis or something, and they're not pregnant when they sign up for the trial, and then they get pregnant. What usually happens is in some form or another, they are unenrolled from the trial or just not followed. They're dropped from the trial for the most part. And that was shocking to me because 
those people, even if they don't continue on the medication and their arguments on both sides for that, they could still provide really useful data. So I think that's another area where there is a real desire to improve. FDA is pushing for change there. I did speak to um, one company in Europe that does want to try to really track the people in its trials who happen to get pregnant during that time. And I think that's, a you know, a lot of physicians lamented to me that that's data that's passing us by. What was very surprising to me was how this played out during COVID. We know that people who are pregnant are more at risk for severe disease. And yet the vaccine was not tested in this population. Yeah. And that was really a source of dismay um, and, you know, worse than dismay for a lot of people. And especially dismay, I think, because there has been more conversation in recent years about studying treatments, therapies, vaccines, whatever, in pregnant populations. There have been efforts, um, you know, even by the federal government to try and improve in this area. And yet after all of that, the COVID vaccine trials, like so many trials, routinely excluded people who are pregnant. If someone got pregnant during the trial between doses, they didn't get the second dose. The companies, I should say, did pledge to follow those who got pregnant in their trials. And there were people who got pregnant. But as you can imagine, that data takes time to gather. So it wasn't available when the vaccines were authorized. And then what happened is sort of predictable. People who are pregnant are already nervous about putting anything in their body that might affect the fetus. There were these new vaccines and many were afraid to take them. And many doctors and even regulators and WHO, CDC, weren't sure what to advise because there just wasn't data. So for a number of months, there was all this uncertainty and pregnant women ended up as a very under-vaccinated group compared to adults as a whole. And some pregnant women did die who were unvaccinated and others lost their babies because like you say, they are at higher risk for severe disease. The situation has improved somewhat. I think we've had now a number of studies that have shown that the vaccines are safe in pregnancy and the, the vaccination rate of pregnant people has increased. You know, we've been talking about new approaches, registries, modeling, slowly inching more pregnant people into clinical trials, and then kind of these slow changes in regulation. But it does seem overall, it's just got to be a change in thinking rather than a change in science that's going to push this forward. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a whole combination. And I think we still need, you know, we need more, everyone would say we need more funding. We know we maybe need more regulations in this area. But it is also changing how we think. Actually, one researcher said to me, there needs to be a cultural shift in viewing pregnant people as medically complex rather than vulnerable and needing protection. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Nicola Gruwich about his science advances paper on measuring inattention in mice and what it can tell us about the trade-offs our brains must make when so many things are vying for our attention. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week. 
from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news. Scroll down a little bit and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Scroll down a little bit. Click subscribe on the right side. What are you paying attention to right now? Maybe this podcast? Maybe an exercise you're doing or the dishes you're washing? What aren't you paying attention to? Are you ignoring other sounds like a dog barking? We attend to things selectively, but what we pay attention to doesn't always make sense to researchers. Nicola Gruich and colleagues write this week in Science Advances about measuring inattention in mice. And what it can tell us about the trade-offs that we make when we decide to pay attention to something or not pay attention to something. Hi, Nicola. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Should I be saying rational inattention or irrational inattention? It's funny because rational inattention implies some sort of behavior which seems irrational, such as ignoring something. Whereas we think surely we should take, we should place attention on everything and that would help us react best in our environment and survive. Yeah, but. <laughs> of course, yeah, that's the, why it's kind of not intuitive on first look. But when you consider this limited budget for uh, processing information, then it all kind of makes more sense. There is always an amount of information being ignored because there is such a breadth of information that we receive through our senses. And it is really important to filter what is important and this is really where the rational inattention theory comes to play, which posits that rational inattentive agents choose to ignore some pieces of information in order to focus on what is more important. And this is, of course, due to constraints that each organism has in that it has limited energy to process all this crazy information around us. Are there some examples from the literature where researchers are scratching their heads saying, People should be paying attention to this, and they're not. They're ignoring it, and we don't understand why. Well, this is something that happens in a lot of the behavioral experiments in this sort of research. It's maybe tough to pick an example from real life, but when you're saying focusing on conversation, you really cut out all the useless noise around people walking around or cars, this type of stuff. Sometimes it's really hard for me to focus on a voice that I'm actually trying to listen to because something else is going on and I can't stop paying attention to it. And I really want to pay attention to something else. That makes sense because not even these systems are very good at filtering everything that's necessary. And of course, you need to sample all the information to be able to assess how important it is. And this links to our study as we also have models which describe how this process occurs through time. And it is a learned process, knowing what to ignore. And it is a constantly changing process. Yeah, being good at ignoring things is pretty important to being able to maneuver in the world. Think of the way the eyes don't update every time something moves when your head moves. Exactly. It's definitely an 
underrated skill, I would say, that's not been thought about a lot until relatively recently with this rational attention theory coming into play in lots of economics, neuroscience, and psychology. So let's get into how you looked at this. You used mice, rational inattention in mice is what you looked at. Why did you focus on non-human animals? A lot of these experiments were previously done only in humans, as it takes a very complicated task to be able to get to all these variables and see how they change and how this is implemented in an organism. But in mice, we have an abundance of methods to actually test the neurobiological factors that are underlying this behavior. So here, we really give this method that can be used by scientists to test then these neurobiological underpinnings and to really forward the field. As you can imagine, this is a lot easier to do in humans as these tasks are so complicated where you can explain. But in mice, they really have to learn this on a trial-by-trial basis, so it's very hard to implement. Yeah, what are the mice trained to do? What are they supposed to pay attention to or not pay attention to? So we implemented this visual discrimination task for mice, where the mouse is trained to pick the more vertically oriented of the two grating stimuli displayed on the screen in front of it. And these grating stimuli are basically parallel lines of certain orientation, which can be anything from vertical to horizontal. So the mouse looks at this, two of these gratings appear in front of the screen, and they have to choose the more vertical of the two by turning a little wheel that's under its front paws. Wow, it's like they can use an old iPod. Something like that. It's a very small screen right in front of them, and they're here turning this Lego wheel, actually. Is it important that they're comparing the two things as opposed to just saying which one is vertical and which one is horizontal? That's exactly right. This task is what you would call a stimulus-invariant task, which there have been a lot of difficulties implementing this in mice as it requires to separate the decision from just one sensory stimulus to comparing the two and seeing which one is more vertical, as then some orientations might not be correct in one trial, but correct in another trial. So it's a very complicated task for a mouse to understand. It takes a lot of training to teach them. Yeah. So where does the attention and attention part come in? So critically in this task, the mice were trained on three versions where all of the variables and parameters were the same. So the mice always had to pick the more vertical orientation and in the same way. But the only difference we did was how we rewarded each trial between these three conditions. Sometimes we would pair higher rewards with more vertical orientations and sometimes higher rewards with more horizontal orientations, which would stimulate the animal to actually change how they allocate their limited resources to different orientations, which we would then be able to see in our model. So they were basically rewarded for different things in different trials, and that meant they had to pay attention to different things in different trials? Yeah, I think you've got it right. So they would do plenty of trials in one of these reward environments to really be able to do this reallocation of their attention. And then they would be switched to another of these conditions. So now we would change this rule, meaning that more reward was now safe for horizontal orientations. And we would track how their behavior changes in this environment to see how they adapt to this change. So what did it tell you about 
the parameters, the trade-offs, the framework that the mice are using to move their attention around? What we saw by applying this rational attention model to the mice was that we could plot out the resource gain function across these orientations, which then told us in a way how much they would allocate to it. And we saw that in reward environments where horizontal orientations were favored, there was a switch towards that side of the sensory space, meaning they were allocating more resources there. But at the same time, they were sacrificing the gain on trials which were less rewarded. So they were acting as rational and attentive agents, in short, by realizing which information is not cost-effective to process with their limited processing budget and which information they should focus on more as it led to more reward, which was in this case, getting a different side drop of milkshake leads to the animal to survive ultimately in the long term. Right. So basically they were on the lookout for more horizontal oriented gradings when the reward was greatest for that. Exactly. Very interesting. So can you kind of make this a little bit more abstract for us then? What does that mean for the larger understanding of this process? Well, it not only confirms the rational inattention model in mice, one of the important things we were able to show was that there is a differential impact of different types of noise in the system. As we modeled the early sensory precision, as well as the late sort of decision noise that was present in the system. And we were able to as well link this noise to different arousal levels. And we were as well able to develop another two models, which would give testable predictions to future scientists working in this field, which is the reinforcement learning model, where the model works on the trial by trial basis, explaining really how the animal updates this resource allocation function, as well as the neural model, which proposes the neural implementation in sensory areas to how this change in attention could be implemented neurobiologically. One thing I was wondering about as I was reading this is why is it important to understand inattention, rational inattention in people? Where is this something that seems to come up a lot? Something that's maybe a bit more long-term and a wider application is in things such as economics, applied economics, as well as perhaps in computational psychiatry, looking at some disorders like autism spectrum disorders and schizophrenia, which have actually been shown to cause deficits in the kind of inference from the environment where irrelevant stimuli should be ignored. And this is something where our models can be applied as there are also mouse models for autism and schizophrenia, I believe. So we could really probe and break down the mechanisms that are deficient in these disorders and be able to better target treatments in the future. All right. Thank you so much, Nicola. Thank you. Nicola Gruich is a PhD student at the Institute for Neuroscience at ETH Zurich. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast.aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search Science Magazine on any podcasting app. 
This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.